2: Welcome to the latest edition of the Football Writers Podcast featuring me, Mike Calvin, Jordan jarrett Bryan of Channel 4 News and Anne-Marie Batson, the journalist and broadcaster. Sadly, sentiment goes only so far in football. The feel-good factor wears off quickly and being a club legend, it might be all very well and good but if results don't come with the reputation, there's trouble ahead. Attention at Old Trafford on Saturday will inevitably focus on Oli Gunnar Solskjaer and Frank Lampard, who are too closely aligned for comfort. Each has doubts to answer, problems to solve. As I said, Jordan, attention is inevitable, but is it fair?
0: Yes, I think it is fair. I think it is fair. I think when you are managing two of the biggest clubs in Europe and in United's case, the biggest club arguably in the world, I think the attention and scrutiny that comes with your performance as a manager of those two clubs is part and parcel of the job. I feel like those two clubs expect to win and not only expect to win, expect to win with a certain style of play and if you're going to take that job, you have to accept all the the criticisms and the credit that comes with managing those two giants of clubs. I think that Solskjaer looks like he's aged 50 years in the last, in the last 12 months. Mind you, know, in, he only in, looked in about world.
2: 12 in the first place. <laughs> that is true. That is true. <laughs> that
0: is true. So it's catching up. That is a good point. Um, but he's, he's not had the best of times as United manager. I think he's had some, some, some good times and bad times. I've made my view very clear on, on Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. I don't think he's the guy for Manchester United. I don't think he's good enough to get them to where they want to be but he's in the job and he's doing his thing Um, with Frank Lampard. I'm a little bit more forgiving with time. He's been there a little bit less time. So I'm I'm a bit prepared to give him this season to see if he really is the guy that Chelsea think he is. But no, in regards to your question, I definitely think that the criticism and the scrutiny is definitely fair. I think you take those roles, you accept what comes with it.
2: Yeah. So if we did decided, yes, it's fair and it's inevitable that they're going to be judged very publicly Anne-Marie, who do you think's faring best under that microscope?
1: It's a a really, really tough question. I keep flipping between the two because I was thinking about this when I was doing my prep. I keep thinking they're so similar in, in so many ways. The fact they've got limited manager experience, they've overseen strong wins but then losses to teams outside the top six... Frank Lampard has had to trust younger players when Chelsea are underneath that transfer ban, you know, using somebody like Tammy Abraham, Billy Gilmore as well, Mason Mound. But I think you have to look at certain things for both of them. You have to look at their Premier League records. You have to look at what they're doing in Europe, their coaching, their tactical awareness. Um, And I'd say, actually, I'm going to go with Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. I think he's just a little bit step ahead because he's been longer in that position at Old Trafford. And and I keep taking myself back to the fact he did take Man United to third in the Premier League. He did get them back into the Champions League. Granted, some results of other teams didn't go their way, which played into Man United's hands, but he did get them back into Champions League, which is what their top priority was. So I think he's faring a little bit better. It's just the question is... I think with Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, he is very much a reactive manager. I think when games are not going their way, he can make those tweaks that are needed to make sure that the game plays in Man United's hands, where I think Chelsea and Frank Lampard are still trying to figure that out right now. I think his tactical nous is a little bit off. And maybe like with, you know, Jordan used that word time, maybe in time that will come and he can show what he can deliver. But it's difficult to say right now because they're both under... A lot of pressure, but I'd, I'd go with only Gunnar Solskjaer simply because he's been in charge longer at Old Trafford.
2: Yeah, well, he certainly needed that win in Paris after the cataclysm against Spurs. Now, that's 10 successive away wins in all competitions. I think it's 18 unbeaten in all. That, Jordan's obviously a reflection of United's strength on the counter. It does sort of highlight the fact, have we got a catch-22 situation here? But how pragmatic can Solskjaer be... When the tradition of his club is based on adventure rather than caution
0: well, that is the the looming elephant in the room for Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, because there's there's as you say, the traditions of how the Man United play you know the man united way, and there's what he feels he has to do in order to get results, and he doesn't feel clearly that he has the players. Or, or has been given enough time to implement the Manchester United way. Therefore, he's had to revert to a counter-attacking style, which I think is never a good tactic for a big club. If you have the kind of attacking talent the Man United have, I'm sorry, you shouldn't be a counter-attacking team. So he's caught in between what he, I think, wants to do, what the club want him to do, and what he thinks is going to get him results in the short term and keep him in a job. So... It's an awkward one. I think he has to be a bit more selfish and think to himself, how do I stay in this job? And the best way to stay in that job is to win games, even if it goes against the, the traditions of of how Man United play. I think there will come a time, and that time I think is coming quite quickly, where questions will be asked about, well, hang on a minute. This is not, the all due respect, it's not Stoke. This is not Blackburn, you're Manchester United. We expect you to not only win games, but win games in the way that we know Man United have traditionally played. And if he can't deliver the two of those things, I think at some point he will be in huge, huge trouble. I think with Solskjaer, we're going to see, you mentioned the away win in Paris, Everybody's like, oh, yeah, you see, he can be a good top manager. I think that because I don't believe he's a top, top manager, you're going to see huge runs of poor results and then huge runs of good results and then huge runs of poor results again to kind of really summise, I think, how how average I think a manager that he is. So I, I think implementing his style of play and seeing how he, he, he takes on Frank Lampard's side this week is um, going to be an interesting thing for me. I'm interested to see how Frank Lampard personally tackles this match. I think he's under slightly more pressure, albeit having been in the role a little bit less time. His owner is more trigger happy to pull the trigger in terms of sacking than Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's manager is. And his owner spent more money than Solskjaer's owner as well. So I think the pressure is slightly more on Frank Lampard this weekend, personally.
2: Yeah, I suppose like in any big job, you have to make big decisions, don't you? Um I think Solskjaer in dropping Pogba. That was a, perhaps a sign of real managerial strength. A difficult one with Mason Greenwood, distinctively different. There's a young player adapting to a pressurised world. You know, there's some talk about his lack of timekeeping skills. He's been out of two games. Are we going to see the power of Solskjaer's man management in this, anne
1: I think so, very much so, and... Ole Gunnar Solskjaer speaks very highly of Mason Greenwood. He knows the pitfalls of what it's like to be a young player suddenly thrust into the spotlight that Greenwood has over the last few weeks or so. You talk about discipline there. There was a report that came out yesterday about his timekeeping. There were a couple of other issues he's injured as well. And I think this is where Ole Gunnar Solskjaer can really show his show his strength as a man manager and the players are very supportive of him. He's somebody who does like clopping away, put your arm around you, reassure you, give you the tools that you need to do to be able to go and do your job. With Greenwood, he is at that stage where, you know, he's playing for, as Jordan said, one of the biggest clubs on the planet. It's under a lot of scrutiny. There's going to be a lot of eyes on him. He needs to now work out how he's going to deal with that pressure and at the same time, uh, deliver on the pitch as well, because it's clear when, I think when Greenwood... Um, and Martial and Rashford play together, they bring a different dynamic at that front three. In terms of, I just want to pick up that point about Pogba. I'm not looking too much into what happened at the uh, Paris match with Pogba being brought on. I think he was brought on to create chances. I think that was a very much a, a tactical substitution, I and mean, he definitely created more chances for the team. And I think for me, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer was looking more at Fred and McTominay to provide that stability and solidness. In the midfield, so I think that for Popper, very much for me, I think that was more of a tactical substitution. But yeah, Mason Greenwood, let's just you know take it one step at a time with him. He's an incredible, incredible talent, and we need to protect that as much as possible.
0: Can yeah. I just agree, Mike? Sorry, with Amari there, I, I totally agree that I think that I find that the Greenwood thing quite fascinating at the moment because he's a young, young man. He does need protecting to some degree. However he does have to take responsibility for the fact that he's in the limelight now. And I did think a few weeks ago, wondered to myself, is there a slight agenda building against against Mason Greenwood? And then the lateness thing came up yesterday, and I just thought, "Mm, no matter what's happening within the media and your name, things like timekeeping, that for me is basic, especially after what happened with England. You need to make sure you're giving people no excuse, no reason, to, to call you out, dig you out. I'm sorry, as a professional footballer, or professional in any industry, timekeeping is the bare minimum. If he can't keep, if he can't arrive on time and, you know, and and and, and, and adhere to the timings of what they, what they have at United, that for me is poor. So while I had a bit of sympathy for him previously, where I was seeing his name in the news a lot for what, you know, seemed a bit unnecessary, um, this one was a bit like, oh, come on, man. Timekeeping, Really? Is that really where where we are? So I think he has to be very careful that he, he, he needs to kind of earn a bit of credit back with not only, it seems, Gareth Southgate, but now on Gunnar Solskjaer. And I think just before he gets going, he doesn't want to have that reputation as being someone that could be a lost talent.
2: Yeah, well, I suppose if he needs an example, a role model even, he only need look across that dressing room to Marcus Rashford, doesn't he?
1: Yeah, one 100%. And yeah, and I agree 100% with what Jordan said It is about personal responsibility as well. And you're right, Mike, looking at, at Marcus Rashford, who's an incredibly hard worker. He's been slightly out of form, starting to come back into form, what he's doing with his social justice campaign over the last few days. Or so, you know, Rashford is a perfect example of somebody who plays the game well, gets his head down, but he's also tackling issues that are off the pitch as well. So yeah, Greenwood would do well to look at Marcus Rashford as a mentor.
2: Yeah he's certainly one of the most inspirational sportsmen I think I can ever remember in terms of the campaign that he's waging here but the way he's doing it it's very measured and you know, to his great credit to his great great credit um, seems a bit trite to start talking about footballing when we're talking about or referring to child hunger but with Chelsea
0: Jordan what do you think their best
2: approach is for Old Trafford?
0: See, it's funny because Chelsea are are clearly, um, Lampard believes in attacking and being on the front foot and really embodying the style of player that he was. But that may well play into Man United's hands. His record against Ole Gunnar Solskjaer since he's been at United, I don't think is a great one. Um, I think Solskjaer has won three of the four games they've played. Um, so he needs to really kind of readdress that record but so it's interesting to see I'm not so sure if Frank Lampard has the tactical acumen to really set up in a defensive setup that allows him to springboard off of that and really then capitalise on a counter so I think he knows one way which is utilising the attacking talent that he's got which I think is the best way for them but as I say that may well play into Man United's hands who actually prefer seemingly under Ole Gunnar Solskjaer sides that do come onto them because they full well know they have the Pace and the passing ability to really hurt you on the counter. So I'm really fascinated to see if Frank Lampard's side can break down that United defence to null and void any potential counter-attacks. Yeah, I suppose, lest we forget, that
2: uh, Severe
0: match was the
2: first time that Lampard has been able to field all six signings. If you look at that, there was a symbolism to that clean sheet. I think it was the 1st nil nil in Lampard's 62nd game as Chelsea manager. What did you make of that defence, Amory? Uh, specifically, the input of Thiago and Mondi. Uh, yeah.
1: There were some individual errors. I think Zuma also committed to errors as well, but they did look solid together. And I actually I didn't expect Chelsea to keep a clean sheet at all because we know Sevilla as a team they've beaten English clubs, they won the Europa League. En route, you know, they're a very, very strong side, a very attacking side. So I was expecting goals from both sides. I was expecting Timo Werner to come out and start firing, getting behind the defenders, getting the service that he needed. And it it just didn't happen at all. And I thought, oh, okay, perhaps then Chelsea can defend then. Perhaps Frank Lampard actually got his tactics right. But I think, yeah, there's still that worry, though. There's still that vulnerability at the back because. Some players are making too many individual mistakes and you can't have that at this level. They need to work together more as a team. I love the fact that uh, Jorginho has been helping Thiago Silva with his English. Um, and I love the fact that he's been giving him a couple of words to learn and understand. So when they're shouting at him on the pitch, he can understand what he needs to do, which I think is really, really great. But yeah, no, I, I shudder to think what those words are, by the way. <laughs> I think they were very clean words, Mike, to be honest. But, yeah, to answer your your question, I think um, they were better defensively, but they were still committing some serious, serious errors, and that could play right into United's hands this weekend.
2: Yeah, talking of United, finally, let's talk about United, the entity, if we could, uh, the business entity, Jordan. Mm-hmm. They're the first club to reach 10 million followers on the uh, Chinese platform Weibo. Is that time <laughs> for an open-top Parade,
0: <laughs> that's very, very mischievous, Mike.
2: Mm. I like that. Um, but they're still making losses, no, aren't they? You know, you look at that 23 million pound loss, and yet the Glazers
0: still take 20 million pounds out of the club in dividends. What's you, going on? It, it's it's yeah, it's um, it's, it's really poor. And if you're a United fan, I've got a few friends who support the club yesterday who were really outraged by that as well. I mean, if you look, if you put your business hat on, you could argue if it's your business, you're entitled to take out whatever money you want and it is their business. But if you're a United fan, that really, really will, will look bad. Um, and I think the PR around Man United at the moment as a, as a club and an entity, as you mentioned, is really poor at the moment. It's not happening for them on the pitch at the moment. They didn't have the transfer window that I, I don't think the fans or the manager would have wanted to have and then when you hear things like that coming out as well it just makes you think these guys are not serious about us as a club But for me, Mike, it just re-emphasizes more than ever that these guys, all they care about is the money. All they're interested in is Man United as a a financial cash cow. They're looking at this institution as a way of lining their own pockets. And even when the club is at its worst, they're still taking money out. Are they entitled to? Of course they are. Is it right in this current climate? Not only with, with COVID, but just generally the club is not doing very well on the pitch. No, I don't think it is. No, no, I wouldn't purport to talk for the owners at Manchester City
2: uh, but I would imagine that they are obsessed I would imagine with the idea of winning the Champions League now they got off to a good start last night beating Porto they're at West Ham in the BT Sport game on Saturday one thing struck me watching the Porto game they are missing Kevin De Bruyne aren't they Amory?
1: Yes, yeah, they are missing Kevin De Bruyne. There was that creativity spark that was missing from the match yesterday. But look, we all know that City are going to be going into that game as the favourites against West Ham, despite the good run of results that West Ham have been having. They're going to be brimming with confidence, but this is Manchester City that we are talking about. And Porto, for me, a very much a threatening team and City are vulnerable at the back. There was no Nathan Ake because he's got a groin injury, which also adds to the injury list with, with Kevin De Bruyne as well. And there was a couple of wobbles, I think, from Ruben Diaz and uh, Uribe as well. I don't think they particularly had a good game. And they had, you know, Foden and Ferran Torres came to the rescue in that kind of sense. So... You know, why Guardiola is full of praise for the team and they were able to get the result. It was a 3-1 win for them. I think there's some really serious issues for that team. The lack of pre-season training, Gerdwin coming back into that match while he's still not feeling 100% after COVID-19 as well. That's another issue that Guardiola is is having to manage. But yeah, I think they are very much missing KDB and this is going to be a real test, just like Klopp at Liverpool. This is going to be a real test for Guardiola to show what he can do with game management and players that are not going to be at his disposal, what he can do to get the matches over the line.
2: Mm, what about Aguero? His penalty against Porto was his first goal in 231 days, which I must admit that fact took me by surprise. Uh,
0: worth a contract extension, Jordan? Yes, I would give him an extra year, only because I think it would be really important for the club to have someone of his stature just around the club while they make a transition to the next striker. Now, whether that next striker is Jesus or not, I don't know. I like Gabriel uh, Jesus. I do like him. Is he the guy that's going to score 25, 30 goals every season and fire you to a Champions League semi-final minimum? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I'm not saying he won't be. I'm not so sure. I personally, if if I'm Manchester City, I'm eyeing up Harry Kane. I'm eyeing up Harry Kane for next summer. And it, it will cost you, of course it will. But I think you can get another five, six, seven years out of Harry Kane at his best. I don't see Spurs winning anything this season domestically or in Europe. So I would be looking to do a deal early now to get him out of Spurs. But I also think having someone like Sergio Aguero around the club, he knows the club. He is one of the senior figures. And the time when I think Fernandinho, I think he will move on next year. And the time when we're still, I think City are still reeling from the lack of leadership from the loss of Vincent Kompany. I think losing another senior figure from the club and in the summer coming I don't know if that would be a good thing for them. I think they could do with having someone like Sergio Aguero around. And even if you only get 10 to 15 league games out of Aguero next season, it's Sergio Aguero. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? The guy, if you give him 20 minutes, you know that there's a chance he can score a goal. So I think, although his powers are diminishing and his contract, if it's an extension, won't be cheap, I would still have him around the club just for his seniority and the quality that he does still possess. A 70, 70% fit Sergio Aguero for me is still better than most strikers mm-hmm. in the Premier League. Yeah, I'd agree with that. What about West Ham, Amory? Are they
2: learning their lessons about? Luxury players, you know, I I noticed last night that Felipe Anderson is almost already mistrusted uh, by Porto. Uh, They've got Ben Rahama probably going to make his debut. Bowen has bedded in quite well. What do you make of West Ham at the moment?
1: I'm actually enjoying watching West Ham and I haven't, I, it's, it's funny for me to say easy, that. I know, easy. I know, I know for the first time. Watch what you say I know, there. I know. And I'm probably going to take Pelters through it. But for the first time in a long time, I'm actually enjoying watching West Ham play. And I think that is because of some of the players that they've brought in and some of the players that they've, they've brought on. And I think what West Ham will want to do is to avoid another Dimitri Payet situation as much as possible in terms of luxury players there you know West Ham are very renowned for a, a defensive setup and I think Declan Rice has been absolutely immense for them in that midfield playing that central defence midfielder role and then having Ben Rama join the team with his creative flair with his pace he can cause defenders all kinds of trouble he's someone who likes to roam freely the problem I think though that David Moyes has is is that he likes that defensive setup. So where is Ben Rama going to sit in that formation? And I was thinking last night, perhaps it could be a 3-4-3 because I've mentioned that he likes to roam freely or maybe a 5-4-1. But then what does that mean for uh, Fabio Fornauz, who's been playing on the left brilliantly? I also think for West Ham, there's a less reliance now on Mikel Artonio because I think there was a lot of pressure on his shoulders to deliver goals. And now you've got Ben Rama, now you've got Fornauz, um, now you've got Jared Brown, who can also help get those goals that West Ham are crucially going to need, particularly so early in this season to help them progress up the table. Yeah, I think the tweaks, you know, uh, there was a running joke, wasn't there, that, that, you know, West Ham were winning these matches when David Moyes was at home. He comes back, they go down yeah. heavily in the, you know, the first few minutes against Spurs. And then all of a sudden they, they mount that massive comeback and, and it ends through all against Spurs. So... Yeah, it's it's an interesting one for me for West Ham. I'm interested to see how they're going to play this against City. As I mentioned, they're going to be absolutely brimming with confidence. And let's be honest, this is a nice headache for David Moyes to have. He hasn't had this opportunity to be able to choose a select number of players in his team to push West Ham forward, which I think will bring some relief to West Ham fans.
0: I, I'm I'm not all in yet on West Ham personally, um, but I will give them credit. I think credit where credit's due. They've done very well West Ham um, this season so far in most of their games. So I will give them credit, but I'm not quite, I don't quite trust them just yet, but um, let's give them a few more games and see where they are come, come near a Christmas time. Yeah. What about Liverpool, Jordan? You know, important win against Ajax. What do you read into
2: Klopp substituting the entire front three after an hour in Amsterdam?
0: See, when he did that, I, I was in the studio um, at TalkSport last night. We were watching it, and we were like, huh? What, why, why would you do that? But then I very quickly remembered you have five subs in the Champions League. So it's not as impactful then um, when you've got two additional subs that you can make as well. So my initial response was that that's very, very bit weird. Um, but then I remembered that there, you, you do have two more subs, so you can change it again if needs be. I don't think he was happy with the front three. I know they were winning, but I don't think it was tactical at all. I think it was, I'm not happy with the three of you. You're all coming off. So I think there was an element of, of fury with, with all three of their performances. And he knew that with the two extra subs that he had, you know, he could he could change it again. But yeah, I, I, I wouldn't read any, too much into it, but I, I saw his face when they came off. And I read into that when I saw the replay that um, I think he wanted more from that front field. I don't think he was getting what he wanted from, from all you three you what well, yeah. I was going to
1: say, Mike, sorry to interrupt you, but mm. Mane, you think he wasn't happy with Mane? I always thought he was the best out of the three say, If anything, I was more surprised that he came off. I wasn't surprised about... Salah coming off, because I don't think he did actually a lot yesterday at all. So And then Firmino got a couple of chances. He did okay. His passes didn't come off, but Salah was being closed down at every opportunity. But Mane, I thought, was the best out of the three. So I was more surprised by him coming off.
0: He was. He, I, th- I agree. He was the best of the three, but I still don't think he was as good as Klopp wanted him to be. Yeah. I think that. I think he was good, but I, th- I think he wanted. More.
2: I, I, I thought it was significant that when he came off, he immediately got got iced up. So then maybe there's a sort of wear and tear issue going on there as well. And I suppose if if that is the case, it would be logical for Yotta to come in against Sheffield United at the weekend. Um, that sense of restlessness, Amory. Obviously, part of the fallout from the loss of Virgil van Dyke, In practical terms, how did you think Fabinho and Gomez got on at the back last night?
1: I think they looked absolutely assured. I think Fabinho had a sterling game and I think... The reality is he's going to have to play some role in defence going forward, given the Virgil van Dijk situation. Look, I can't imagine what it was like in that changing room last night going up against Ajax, who are a brilliant, brilliant, strong force within Dutch football, knowing that one of your your talismans is not with you and your goalkeeper as well is not with you in terms of Alisson. And they went out there. It was probably very unnerving for those first few minutes. And then they started, Liverpool started to get more into a rhythm and push the ball more forward as the game went on. So for me, I think those two lads, lads—they I think they did brilliantly. They looked very assured. Don't forget, you still got Joel Matip. He is an option if he can stay injury-free over the next few months or so. Um, again, like I mentioned with Pep Guardiola about City, this, as I keep saying, I think this is a real test of Klopp's coaching and man-management skills to get the team through over the next few weeks so they can feel more confident about what they can do in all the competitions. I think we forget they're still in all competitions right now. There's still opportunities to win Cups. So I think it's very much on Klopp's shoulders to use the squad depth that he has. They've got one of the best squads in the Premier League. Let's see what Klopp can do with that.
0: Can I just say quickly, Mark, as well, I I agree with Anne-Marie that I think that Liverpool were good defensively last night as well. They weren't really tested in the final third. Ajax's build-up play I thought was really good. They then got to the final third and they were blunt. Fabinho is one of my favourite players in the league. I love him. He's not one of the best, but one of my favourite. I love him. I've all, I really wanted Arsenal to sign him when, when Liverpool got him. I think he's very intelligent. I think he's got a bit of nastiness about him. I think his positional play is amazing. I think he will play a lot of games at centre-back for Liverpool this season in the absence of Virgil van Dijk. And that may change how Liverpool set up defensively. Because one of the great things about Virgil van Dijk is, in the air, he, he's just so dominant. That may now mean, because the lack of dominance in the air may make teams think we can now cross the ball more. So that may make Klopp think our fullbacks, you've got to drop back 10 yards now stop crosses coming into the box so I think defensively how Liverpool set up is how I'm looking I'm really looking to see how Klopp alters their defensive unit
1: But you also you could say yeah. that sorry Mike that Trent Alexander-Arnold and Andy Robson were brilliant on the flanks yesterday and maybe that's the way that Klopp is going to have to think going forward relying much more on his wing backs now to play a more defensive role
2: Yeah I think we're in a you know, we're in a transitional season really it's a unique season in many ways as well Amory, you know we, when we look at the way the game is trending, Real Madrid's defeat by Shakhtar is that a sign that the balance of power in Europe is shifting?
1: <laughs> do you know, what? You know I, I won't even
2: mention. <laughs> I won't even mention the Super League.
1: We'd be here all day otherwise, all three of us ranting about it. <laughs> um, I have to admit, when I I was checking the scores last night, I had to do a double take when I saw the score. I was not expecting Shakhtar Dinesk to be up you know, two goals, three goals within the (laughs) first, you know, 45. It just, it was amazing. Look, I I think Real Madrid, honestly, I think they're in a lot of trouble this season. I really, they were simply not, Good enough, particularly as they went into that game, they'd lost to Cadiz at the weekend by one goal to nil. They tried to play a counter-attacking style, which did not work off. And I think they underestimated Shakhtar Donetsk as well. I still think we're we're Real Madrid, we can take on anybody, we can beat anybody. I just think if you go in there with that attitude, you're going to fall. So for me, you know, it was a terrible first half. There was sloppy defending, as well, and Shakhtar Donetsk, by the way, went into that game very, very much under strength because of COVID nineteen affecting some of their players. They had to rely on some young faces as well. Two names are gonna. There was two year olds, and I apologise if I pronounce their names incorrectly. Uh, Kornilenko and Bondar were apparently the stars of that match and why wouldn't you you're playing against Real Madrid you're going to up your level for sure on the world stage so I think the fact that Shakhtar fielded a weakened team and still were able to walk away from a result is a pure embarrassment for Real Madrid and I read this morning that uh, Zidane didn't come out for his press conference for at least one hour afterwards no doubt he was in the changing room using all sorts of expletives and strong words at the team and rightly so because they were really really poor for that match
2: Yeah, it was interesting, wasn't it? The next, I think, they had 10 players who tested positive. I think it was 19 people across the club in total. So they were without seven starters, which tells you a lot. In terms of the best side in Europe, Jordan, need we look any further than Bayern? They absolutely steamrolled Atletico, didn't they?
0: Yes, they really did. Um, and I shouldn't be saying this now, but I'm going to just say it, because I'm an honest person. Atletico were my tip to win it this year as well. So that's gone out the window very, very early. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, Bayern looked like a team that is basically telling the rest of Europe, we are good to go again. Bring your best because our season hasn't finished in Europe yet. We, we're, we're just going to roll on, can, can carry on. And if you can win, beat anybody you know, 5-0 in the Champions League, you've done, you've done very well. But this is Simeone's Atletico Madrid side. They've beaten 5-0, which I think is is doubly impressive. Um, yeah, they, they look like they can just bring on players at will. Everyone looks hungry. You know, everyone's competing for places. Some of the goals they scored, you see, you see the third goal. That's a brilliant goal. Oh, the fourth goal is even better. The fifth goal is even better. And it's just like, they're just having so much fun. And they seem like the team to beat by, by a country mile. I can't see even a City or Liverpool or Real Madrid, at their best, getting near to Bayern Munich. So I think injuries permitting, I, I think it's Bayern's to lose once again.
2: Yeah, I, I think you were getting a little bit carried away there, mate, because I think it was only 4-0, but apart from that... Oh, was it 4?
0: Sorry.
2: No, but uh, the point is well, well made and well taken. I suppose at this stage, what I'm going to do is put my feet up on the desk, uh, knowing that I've got two uh, gooners uh, in my company. <laughs> um, uh, one name... Mesut Ozil, one principle loyalty. He says it's dead. Do you want to discuss that?
1: I'm so sad about this. And I I, want to, I'm going to put my Arsenal hat on for a second. This makes me incredibly sad because of the way this, this whole thing has played out. And you've got a powerhouse that is Mesut Ozil and you've got a powerhouse that's Arsenal who've now divorcing themselves from each other and divorce isn't Something that is an enjoyable experience, from from what I've you know my friends have gone through, it's a painful and emotional experience, and uh, we're starting to see that now between Arsenal and Mesut Özil. And I wasn't surprised that he released that statement yesterday. The word that he used, loyalty, generated a lot of debate on social media. Has he been loyal to the club? Has he delivered to the club? Have the club been loyal to him? Have they said they were going to do what they were going to do? The question about should it have been given that contract back in, the, you know, when Ivan Gazidis was there. But then sometimes he hasn't delivered on the pitch. His stats for 2017, 2018 in terms of assists were absolutely off the chart and then dipped off over that. But then Arsenal, Arteta played him up until March, up until, you know, we went into lockdown. So what went wrong? I haven't liked the fact that Arsenal have said that it's been footballing decisions. You know, the one thing I talk about is that, you know, football supporters are not daft. If you're going to tell them the reason you're not playing him is because of footballing reasons, you need to go a bit deeper and explain what the football reasons are. Because I think that's created a lot of speculation. If it's because he doesn't suit the formation or he's uh, somebody who doesn't track back when asked or hasn't worked hard enough in training, why not just say that? For me, And you know what I find really ironic? Now I'm going to start on a rant. What I really find <laughs> ironic is that we, you know, Neymar Jr. in in his uh, match at PSG against Manchester United. When I was watching that match, I noticed he didn't track back. He wasn't interested in defending. He just wanted service and wanted to create goals and score goals. And nobody was having a go at him about that. And yet with all we did. And I don't understand that for me maybe Jordan can explain that to me but I don't get that at all that as a creative player that some are allowed that license to be creative and others are damned by it and are we starting to lose that number 10 role as well I do wonder about attacking players while we you know some players I think we're losing the art of defending within football to be honest are we starting to dilute attacking players as well I hope not, because they're so vital for the game. And Arsenal at the moment, let's be honest, are lacking creative flair. They're lacking that creativity. Why can't Arteta get a tune out of Ozil?
0: Well, why indeed, Jordan? I think Meza Ozil is a victim of modern-day football and styles. And what I mean by that is, I think to Anne-Marie's point about the type of number 10 that he is, I, I felt for a while that what Meza Ozil offers isn't required anymore at the top level of the game. So I I remember seeing it first with one matter at Chelsea. That player in the hole that sits behind the striker, that doesn't track back, doesn't defend, but basically, no, you stay at the top, we'll get you the ball, because we know that more often than not, you're going to create magic. You haven't got to run back, but just, just wait there, get the ball. Those days have gone. And I think the Guardiola and the Bayern Munich early incarnation of maybe eight, nine years ago, they change the game in terms of all attacking players have to be on it. There's no carry. You don't carry players anymore. And Meza Ozil is not the sort of player that I think is going to be dynamic enough to be making often sprints. He he sprints in, in bursts. And I think he's been phased out of the game. I, I think if you look at the best attackers in the world, I take your point on Neymar, but I think he does get criticism for the fact he doesn't defend enough. I think in... In the French League, it's a bit different because you can get away with that. You look at Kevin De Bruyne, you look at Lionel Messi. They're some of the hardest working attackers in European football. They're also the most gifted. So I think that he's been phased out for that reason. I'm less sad than anne about this. I've wanted him gone for four years. I think that his time has come and gone. I think he's under-delivered and been a failure at Arsenal. Yes, questions can be asked about Wenger, Emery and Arteta. Have they got the best out of a player that clearly has talents but I think he's been given an opportunity. When Arteta first got the job, he play, he played him. He did play him and I didn't think he should have. I thought, don't die on that hill, Arteta. Don't go there. Emre failed, Wenger failed. Don't go there. And he did. He gave him a chance. He didn't get what he wanted. I don't think it's, it's incumbent on Arteta to give us the reasons as to why he's not playing him. I think we can see it on the field of play. Arsenal are more dynamic. Arsenal are more hardworking. Arsenal are more of a team without Mesut Ozil and I'd finally say to your point Anne-Marie about the lack of creativity I think, think it's a bit of a myth to say that Arsenal lack creativity therefore Ozil's the answer because I've also seen Mesut Ozil play so many times for Arsenal and we still lack creativity. So the idea that he's the answer to the question, I think is a bit of a myth a little bit as well. It's, it's ended a bit sad, granted, but let's move on. Let's un this football club and just really move into a new era of Arsenal Football Club where Arteta's taken the team. I think it's brutal, but I like it. I like the way that Arteta's dealing with this. We're going to move on, last year of your contract and move forward. I, it, it has ended a little bit sad, granted, yes, but I think it had to be done and I, I, I'm with Arteta on this one.
1: I'm not suggesting I'm not with Arteta, but I disagree with you about that. It, it is an incumbent on Arteta. I think it, I think it is I th- not him per se, but the club because the questions never went away. And as somebody who used to work in public relations. The one thing you want to do is answer those questions because it takes the speculation away and closes the chapter and then people can move on. We haven't moved on from the last four years, Jordan. And I think that's because Arsenal haven't dealt with this in the right way. Sometimes in terms of communicating why certain decisions have been made. Just answer the question. Why are you not playing him? Oh, it's because of X, Y and Z. Right, great. Exactly then, Jordan. Then the club can move on and de the club. But it's been hanging over their heads for the last four years or so. And I think from a PR perspective, I think the communication about what's gone on with Ozil has been pretty poor.
2: Well actually to be honest PR in football is not the greatest anyway is it to be <laughs> honest and and there there've, there've been some really brutal decisions given this need to actually come up with a 25 man squad you know we we've, we've got Petter Czech in the Chelsea squad they've got four goalkeepers what about another player in limbo Jordan Phil Jones now he he was given a new four year contract at Manchester United last year now he can't even make the squad okay you know he became almost you know, I'm um, very unfairly almost a comic book figure, but
0: surely he's not irreparably damaged goods, is he? Um, I've I've never really been a, a fan of Phil Jones. I think Phil Jones is this kind of again embodiment of. The archetypal English centre back. He's got broad shoulders. He's tall, he's strong, he puts his head where your foot is, you know, he's 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 all, all all of that kind of character. A little bit like where I think Maguire's going, but but that's a different discussion for a different pod. Um <laughs> but I, I think also the Phil Jones contract is is an example of English football having too much money, more money than sense. And I think he's not of the level of Manchester United. I'm surprised that he's still there. I think like Chelsea and Arsenal, United have had trouble getting rid of players. On big wages and moving them on because there are such big wages, the clubs that maybe are interested in those players, they just can't get anywhere near those wages. Um, I it did I did scratch my my eyebrow a little bit when the, the contract extension was offered. It was a big one as well, as as, as far as I'm aware too so yeah, I think United have done a little bit of an Ozil there. They've kind of called themselves into a, a contract and tied themselves to it for a while for a guy that they they have no, they have no real plans for. So yeah, I'm not sure where he goes next. I'm, I'm not sure where he goes. They might have to pay up some of his contract to move him on because no one's going to go anywhere near Phil Jones on those sorts of wages. Mm, I think by common consent, Tottenham
2: had a good transfer window. Um, the West Ham performance led to the accusation that they're suddenly Spursy. Burnley on Monday night is probably going to be the ideal place to find out whether that's true, isn't it, Anne-Marie?
1: The individuals' errors cost Spurs the points against that West Ham game. For example, Aurier and Sissoko shouldn't be committing fouls in dangerous places. Harry Winks was guilty for that Lanzini goal. Of course, I can't imagine that Mourinho will allow that team to be sloppy against Burnley. I think that was a proper wake-up call for Spurs. Was it a much-needed jolt? I don't know. But I don't think they were... They're a team that will not allow themselves to make those mistakes again or well, at least two games in a row. I thought and Ndombele had a fantastic game. And Kane and uh, and Son are... Uh, I'm sorry to say this as an Arsenal fan, but they are brilliant together <laughs> <laughs> they are if I'm being objective and putting my journo hat on which I am they are devastating together and I think they will cause Burnley a lot of problems
2: and son son's been given a new contract as well hasn't he so that was overdue
1: yeah yeah very much so and he rightly should be paid what he's worth he's been absolutely brilliant for Spurs and I think he's appreciated as a player the fans absolutely love him I I enjoy watching him play he's somebody who's He gets in opponents' faces. He recovers the ball. He's clicked with Harry Kane. I think they've had that partnership now for about four or five years. Yes to his contract. I mean, I was looking at his goals tally since he last signed his contract. He's scored between, I think, 28, 30 goals. I think it's reward for his brilliant form over the last couple of years or so. And he shouldn't be undervalued at that club. And he should be paid as equally as as Harry Kane and be recompensed for that.
2: OK, we're coming you know, close to the end now. Um, I just want to have a, a little touchy-feely uh, interlude, if we could. Uh, Roy Hodgson. Roy Hodgson. You know, I haven't got any soft music in the background, but uh, a little bit of an appreciation of him, if we could. It's probably going to be his last game at Fulham, obviously a club he's associated with, uh, with Palace on Saturday afternoon. You know... There are times when he's he's Victor Meldrew, isn't he after matches he's he's terrible you know he, he's 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 short with people he's curt he's rude but on other times he's effusive intelligent articulate will the real Roy
0: Hodgson stand up Jordan um I hope so I hope so I think he you we will, we will know how long he's been in the game and what he's achieved in the game. Um, And I I agree with you, Mike. I I think he's very, um, I know a lot of people in the media who have very mixed feelings about uh, Roy (laughs) Hodgson and his dealings with them. Yeah, I I think Roy Hodgson's at a period now where I just think he wants to just enjoy the teams that, that, that are playing in front of him in terms of his team. I think he's got an exciting uh, team there at Crystal Palace of players, attacking talent, young talent. And I think that now in the kind of the latter years, now he's coming to the end of his managerial career. You'd think he just wants to just see some really good football. Palace aren't going to win the league anytime soon. So I think for him, it's more just about, can I just see some really good football? Um, Fulham is a side that are, that are in big trouble. I think, in big, big trouble. Um, and we, we know what, what he did when he was there uh, previously. But I I, th- I think going to Fuller, I think this this, this game it will be interesting for Crystal Palace. I think they have a chance to get a European spot. I think the league is so weird this season. I really think if Palace are shrewd, they could really um be the surprise package this season. And I think that his experience in Naus could, could shock a few people, for sure.
2: Yeah. um, You know, the first game of the weekend, Amory, uh is Leeds and Villa. I find myself... Conflicted, and, you know, I was brought up to believe that uh, Leeds United were the evil empire. Yet I really like the way they play. Uh, am I am I being a bit foolish?
1: No, you're not alone. I'm so glad you've said this because <laughs> <laughs> I've been I'm I'm conflicted about Leeds United as well, in particular about one of the the goalkeeper Jordan of Leeds United, Ilka Casillas, and everything that happened around that. I'm very conflicted about that. And yet watching them, I think Calvin Phillips, by the way, is going to be a massive miss with his shoulder injury for the next five to six weeks. Let's see how Bielsa copes with that. I am horribly conflicted about it because I didn't think Leeds would have a brilliant, a good start in the Premier League. I thought they would really struggle and they've somehow managed to defy some of their critics, particularly that first game against Liverpool. Despite the fact that it was a loss, they showed they weren't afraid of the champions. And uh, I'll be honest, I expected more from that Wolves game, actually, Leeds versus Wolves. I thought Leeds would actually win it, given that they're very much a side that like to attack. And I thought they would put the Wolves defence under a lot more pressure. I thought Patrick Bamford had some great chances, but didn't take them. And then obviously Wolves managed to, you know, Raul Jimenez took all three points. Um, I think it, this one, I think, needs the crowd. It's such a shame that the crowds are not going to be able to watch this match because I think it would actually be rocking. I think it brings such a brilliant atmosphere to this. And Leeds, for me, they've demonstrated they're not afraid. They're not afraid. They're willing to, they want to take their game to the big boys. They want to take their game to those outside the top six. And they want to make their mark in in the Premier League. But like you, Mike, I'm horribly conflicted about it because of the history of Leeds and because of one certain goalkeeper.
2: Yeah. Um, Just on a personal note, and want to obviously come back really to our thoughts for the day. Uh, Jordan, um, I'd like you, if possible, please, to dwell on the report that you exclusively did for Channel 4 yesterday about mm. the extent of uh, the racial abuse, online abuse suffered by our Premier League footballers. And specifically, I think in the study that you, you reported on, three in particular,
0: can you articulate what you felt you know, doing that report? I felt exhausted because it's a subject that we seem to be discussing and talking about time and time again. The report revealed some really hard numbers behind, I think, what many of us know already. But it revealed the numbers behind the amount of racist abuse that footballers in the Premier League, well, across the league, sorry, receive. Now, that we already knew, but it's a very sample, small sample size of six weeks during the spring that they have collated uh, 100,000 tweets posted to footballers. Um, But what was interesting about the report was that there was an exponential increase in racist abuse. They were already being racially abused, but there was an added um, layer, um, tenfold of racist abuse when these players were tweeting about Black Lives Matter or racial injustices. So imagine that. You're already getting racially abused. You're tweeting in support of of racial unity um, and equality, should I say, and you're getting 10 times more for that as well. There were three players that made up a significant, almost half of, of the of the racist, racist abuse received were towards Raheem Sterling, Wilfred Zaha and Adebayo Akinfenwa of Wiccan Wanderers. And it was very... Speaking to Adebayo, and I spoke to also Lyle Taylor as well, who didn't make the piece, but they they they... they we're at a loss to kind of decide what they think is the next step. They all agreed, added the PFA, that the, the government should step in and take this out of the hands of Twitter because Twitter are clearly failing to regulate and police their own platform. Um, and protect these individuals, they want the government they be in the peer face or and the players want the government to step in and take control of all the social media platforms because some of the abuse i can 't i won't you know say what 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 it was, but some of the abuse that these these guys were, were were receiving i'm i'm you know i don't wince very easily, but some of the words and phrases used were just were just incredible and it 's like wow you're you're turning your phone on and seeing that daily. Aliaba Fenwell was speaking about a lot of black colleagues that he has. Just don't go on Twitter anymore. They come off Twitter, they just think to themselves, I don't need that. I don't need that sort of abuse in my life. And a, th- a final thing that was interesting in the report as well was the use of emojis and images. So many people are now finding very cute and savvy ways of racially abusing football players with emojis. So, for example, if someone says, someone puts a banana or a monkey um, and, you know, uh, fancy going to the zoo this weekend. To someone that doesn't understand the nuances of racism, they'd be like, well, what's a banana or a monkey or the zoo got to do with any black person? But we all know what that means. We all know what the, the monkey means. So they need to find a way of regulating that as well. So my thought of the day is that until Twitter can be policed better in protecting black people generally... I wonder if the sad, the sad truth is and the sad reality is that if it's affecting your mental health, just come off Twitter, just just come off it. And you shouldn't have to, but if it's affecting your mental health and it's affecting you that badly, um, protect your mental health because no one else will. It's, it's
2: just appalling. And I, like you, just can't conceive of actually just turning your phone on and getting that filth thrown at you. Um, Anne-Marie, what would you like to talk about?
1: My thought for the day is about a report that came out this week from the FA outlining the new strategy for the women's game. And there were certain targets within that strategy that were set for for 2024. And one in particular is about increasing diversity in the women's senior team for England, because Nikita Paris has given an interview where she's urged the FA to set up centres of excellence in in a city. She's somebody who's been very vocal about it. She's had her own academy as well. She's she can speak from experience coming from Toxteth and, and how Mo Marley's, um I can't think it was a if it was a family friend or a relative or her husband used to take Nikita to, to matches and, and train her and discovered her talent. And that's how her pathway began. My thought for the day is the question why? Why are we still talking about this? Why are we still trying to work out ways in increasing BAME uh, players into women's football and into the England team? Why are we still trying to make it more accessible? Why are we at this point? Why is there only two women of colour in the current England squad? That's Nikita Paris and Demi Stokes. I know uh, Rinsola Babajide has been part of the training camp, but she hasn't won her first camp yet. Why does the FA talk about tackling diversity again? when it's something that should have been not necessarily sorted, but at least got on top of. Why is the talent pathway too narrow? It's all these questions as why. And I get tired of asking why sometimes. Why can we not be at a point where we can say, actually, this is the good work that has been done. And I accept the FA has made strides to, tr- to make things better, but it's not at the point where it needs to be. And the other question I would ask is, there are some talented players out in the WSL and the Championship. Why doesn't the England coach have a look at them? Perhaps players in the Championship as well to be part of the England setup. There were some names flown around yesterday. What about Lauren James of Manchester United? She's been brilliant for them, but she's currently out injured. Ebony Salmon from the Bristol City as well, possibly her name. But we shouldn't be focusing on names. We should be focusing on making things better. But my question is, why do we need to make things better when they should have been better in the first place?
2: Yeah, well said, well said. Um, I suppose everyone in football these days wants their pound of flesh, or to be more accurate, as many pounds sterling as they can accumulate. It should come as no surprise then that the Republic of Ireland have been drafted in as England's opponents in yet another friendly at Wembley on November the 12th. They're taking the place of New Zealand, who pulled out as a precaution in the pandemic. Now, I understand Gareth Southgate wanting more playing time, but this season is already an assault course for our top players. Another three internationals in less than a week is madness. In my view, clubs will be justified in withholding players. Do you agree? Please let me know. In the meantime, thanks to Anne-Marie and Jordan... And to you for joining us here on the Football Writers Podcast.
0: Planning for your next trip?